0: Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 47. The U.S. Pandemic Response and How to Improve It My guest, James G. Kahn, MD, MPH, is Emeritus Professor in the Philip R. Lee Institute for Health Policy Studies, the Institute for Global Health Sciences, and the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of California, San Francisco. He has published widely on the cost and cost-effectiveness of HIV prevention and treatment in the developing world, as well as on other health conditions. Dr. Khan researches and educates on the cost and financing of single-payer slash Medicare for All. In 2005, he quantified that U.S. healthcare Care Administration costs Funded through private insurance, account for nearly 25% of the costs of physician and hospital care. In 2014, he led a team that estimated potential savings of at least $400 billion per year from simplifying insurance related administration in the U.S. Dr. Kahn also served for two years as President of the California Chapter of Physicians for our National Health Program. Please note that a vaccine has been approved between the time this podcast episode was recorded and published. Dr. James G. Kahn, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Looking forward to talking with you. Thank you. So I'd like to start by asking how bad is the situation now with
1: COVID? Well, the situation's uh, quite bad for the moment. As your listeners will know, uh, we had a rather severe version of the pandemic in the United States, mainly due to ineffective action, or perhaps I should say ineffective inaction, by the Trump administration. And then with increasing efforts to to control the pandemic by many states and with the warmer weather, the pandemic uh, fell substantially. There were many fewer cases, but with the return of colder weather, people inside more, um, the number of cases uh, has uh, shot up considerably. Um, The good news on the horizon, of course, is that there are three uh, vaccines which appear to work quite well, and the rollout will start soon. Now, this is not an immediate solution, uh, mainly because the process of rolling out a vaccination program is daunting. We can talk some more about that if you like, but I think that is, you know, uh, on balance, uh, very good news truly there truly is light at the end of this tunnel. Unfortunately, um, we will see quite a few more infections and deaths before we get this under control and I should one last thing i 'll add is that aside from the vaccine, we will need to enhance our public health measures to prevent uh, transmission as much as possible. Two elements we 're seeing of that one is a a stronger uh, stay-in-place or shelter-in-place orders such as we're getting right now in California, and also initial suggestions from the incoming Biden administration of a 100-day mask-wearing policy, which was incidentally endorsed by one of the Trump officials. Uh, So we're beginning to see uh, good public health and good science come back into play here.
0: Well, you mentioned vaccines, and as you said, we expect them to be released soon. I will want to discuss vaccines more, but for now, what do we need to do to control infections in the U.S.?
1: most important thing we can do is is be cautious. Um, My wife and I and my two boys, uh, who are 19 and 21, are extremely careful. Um, My wife and I uh, don't go shopping uh, out in the community here in Northern California. We don't go to stores, except the very well-controlled access. Uh, We don't socialize in person. We're huge Zoom fans. Uh, uh, You and I are doing this interview by Zoom. I'm a big fan of Zoom. Um, Mask wearing, good mask, N95, if there's any real risk of exposure social distancing, uh, all of those are the most important things that we can do to get a hold of of the pandemic. Of course, uh, testing is now widely available, and we make ample use of that in in our family and recommend that others do it well. So when the boys uh, visit us, they normally are in college in Southern California, and when they come to visit us, they, they do one, sometimes two tests, just because tests aren't perfect before they uh, come into in our house. And so uh, we've been lucky with attention to that kind of caution to have um, no COVID in our family. Uh, not everyone can control the situation quite that well, uh, but we, you know, I strongly encourage people to take these uh, rules and this guidance very seriously. Wear masks, keep social distance, do not take silly risks, and I guess, from a slightly different perspective, I would say the biggest thing we can do is to vo- avoid super spreader events. So large gatherings of people, whether for a holiday, uh, extended family holiday gatherings or holiday parties, those are really bad ideas. And I think this, this uh, season, uh, holiday season in 2020, is the one where we really uh, need to make some sacrifices on the in-person socializing in order to get through this last phase and get on to the, the upcoming phase of CC, I call it, COVID-controlled. That's the new phase, CC. We had BC, that's before COVID, and then we're going to have CC.
0: Or maybe BCC, before covid control. Oh, nice. Very nice. But anyway, so let me just say something. My family has a big get-together on Thanksgiving. I go back to my hometown in St. Louis, and we canceled that this year because we were just too concerned.
1: And- well, that's, that's great. Uh, good for you. That's, that's the thing to do this year. Everyone do what, Joe, do, it, do what Joe did. Especially with the Christmas holidays
0: coming up. Right. So let's talk a little bit about vaccines. As you said, it takes a while to distribute a vaccine. And so what should be done in terms of safety precautions while the vaccine is being distributed? And assuming the vaccine gets out there and works, do you think we'll... Return to normal, or will it be a new normal but close to the old normal?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think the things we can do meantime are some of the things I talked about a few moments ago. The, so the vaccines are highly effective; um, they appear to be ninety percent or more effective. But uh, one of the vaccines uh, has some question about effectiveness. Uh, maybe depending in certain circumstances, more like sixty to seventy percent effective. Uh, but it's easier to uh, administer. So there's some trade-offs. These are highly effective vaccines in general. The real challenge is uh, the logistics of, of distributing. Um, uh, it, it is a massive uh, undertaking. And uh, the Trump administration spoke of the army being ready to do it and trying to reassure us that the army was ready to do it. And in fact, there was no operational plan. We're, we're learning now that that was all, can I say BS on this podcast? Sure. All right. Well, I've just said it. Um, I mean, it was just all made up, like everything else that has come out of uh, the Trump White House over the past four years. Um, and so that's happening now. There is uh, logistics plans are being developed. But, you know, these are a lot of vaccines that need to be developed. And uh, at least one of the vaccines requires two doses. So that's yeah, double duty. Um, the other issue is there. Uh, there is a widespread suspicion about the vaccines. Uh, some people, many people, many of the Trump supporters, still believe that COVID is um, is is made up. It's not a real thing, so they're not going to get a vaccine. And then other people who believe COVID is real, many don't believe vaccines work or think the vaccine is actually a plot to implant chip to monitor people. It's just crazy. This kind of vaccine skepticism is not new to COVID. We've had this uh, a lot over the decades. And I'm from uh, a part of the country in, in the Bay Area, Northern California, where uh, suspicions about vaccines are, are fairly high. So we've had some real issues around the measles vaccination. Um, but, uh, so some people aren't going to want to take the vaccine, and that's the, probably the single biggest challenge. I read recently that uh, three past presidents, uh, Obama, uh, Bush, and uh, Clinton, I think it was, uh, agreed to take the vaccine publicly on TV. That will help. Of course, Biden uh, and his team will do everything they can to less, <clears throat> lessen suspicion to reassure people about that vaccine safety and efficacy. But still, there will be, I'm gonna just guess, there will be 30 to 40% of people who will refuse to take the vaccine. And that uh, means that it's harder to achieve the herd immunity, the widespread immunity uh, that we want. Um, So it's gonna be a, a combination of pushing the vaccine and also uh, enhancing these public health measures. Let me me throw a little true geekiness into this discussion, because I think it's helpful. In um, understanding how infectious diseases spread in the population, there is a concept called R-naught. It's a big R and a little sub-zero, and it's pronounced in the British way R-naught. And in, in the world of people who model disease spread, which is a world that I uh, travel in sometimes R naught is is defined as the number of new infections caused by a single infected person in a completely susceptible population so you have one person who is infected no one else around them is infected how many times will they transmit that infection to someone else if R naught is less than 1 the disease goes away in other words with Each person being responsible for less than one infection, the number of infections goes down, and within a few reproduction cycles of the uh, infection, within a few weeks or months, the disease has largely gone away. Faster if it's closer to zero. So the challenge between vaccination and public health measures is to drive R0 less than one. Now, the true story for modeling all of this is a little bit more complicated, but for that, I suggest your listeners attend uh, graduate programs in disease modeling. I can offer some suggestions if they contact me. Okay. One of the things, don't some
0: of these vaccines need to be kept very cold? And will that make it hard to distribute to rural areas, for example?
1: yes some of them need to be kept cold again the, one of the vaccines that is is uh, apparently a bit less effective is also easier it doesn't have a, a what's called a cold chain requirement like that um it's a huge challenge i don't think it's a challenge that's limited to rural areas i think whenever you are moving things around whether it's in a city or in the countryside you can have obviously you can have trucks that are uh, it's adequately cooled to accommodate the the cold chain requirements to go to rural areas, uh, but it does. Uh, in general, it's a really good point. I'm glad you raised it. It does um, complicate the logistics. Um, now, this is not a new issue in the United States or anywhere in the world. Uh, cold chain technology for vaccine delivery has been um, you know around for many decades, uh, and so we're not starting fresh, but um, but we're trying to get you know, hundreds of millions of doses out there in the United States. Um, and so, um, it's a, you know, it's part of the job of, of logistics. I want to
0: go back a second to the herd immunity. And one of the things that was scary to me is you said that maybe 30 40% of people don't like vaccines and may not get vaccinated. But I want to point out they put other people at risk. For example, I have a relative who had a kidney transplant. And as you, I'm sure you know, with transplant, that compromises your immune system somewhat. So when people don't get a vaccine, they put that person at risk. I assume she'll be able to get the vaccine, but if she couldn't, you know, there's a good chance that she could get COVID or some other disease. And then with a compromised immune system, who knows what would happen? Just a quick comment about that?
1: You're absolutely right. Uh, It's always mystifying to me when you have this excellent science about the efficacy of vaccines and the importance of herd immunity. Um, And um, there are these counter narratives, these um, belief systems that there's something either dangerous about the vaccine and it might cause autism, that's never been shown for measles, um, or that it's a plot to inject something in our bodies and exert control. And so none, the fact that none of that stuff is true doesn't mean that there aren't lots of people who believe it. We know, we know from the news recently there are lots of people who believe uh, these conspiracy theories. Quite unfortunate. I, I think in our country, um, it's a hard sell to make a, ma- a vaccine uh, mandatory. Uh, We do it for measles through school entry requirements mainly, but um, I don't anticipate the Biden administration will want to go down that path. Uh, It will be widely perceived by the very people who suspect the vaccine of being nefarious that the uh, desire to make it mandatory only proves that. So uh, I think we're going to have to work with good old public health persuasion and uh, get get where we need now. An- another issue that I want to mention, and you probably were going to ask. So, I, if so, i apologize for preceding your question. The vaccine will not be delivered to everyone at the same time. It will be staged. Uh, it will be uh, given to people who are most vulnerable and most at risk of spreading first, and that would be healthcare workers who are exposed to very serious. Uh, uh, COVID doses every day, and they will get vac- vaccinated first, and when and then the, the old uh, and vulnerable, particularly people in nursing homes. So someone like me, I'm 63, uh, happily not in a nursing home. Um, you know, I may be in the second tier of vaccinations, but um, the, the idea there is to um, help the people who are most likely to become infected and get sick and die and the people who are most likely to retransmit before worrying about everyone else. So that's that's what we're going to see in coming weeks.
0: Well, thank you for mentioning that. And I'm aware of that. And I think it's a good strategy, personally. I'm glad they're doing it that way. Of course. I'd like to shift gears a little bit. And one of the things, during the Trump administration, public health resources have been greatly reduced. Could you briefly describe those reductions and how you think it has affected our COVID
1: response? Or
0: given what Trump was doing and not really addressing it, does it even matter?
1: So I'm going to take a slightly different tack on this one. I agree that, that public health resources have, have fallen in the Trump administration, but two really important caveats. First of all, Public health resources have been falling for many years, including during the Obama administration. If you just look at budgets for state and local health departments and at budgets for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, our premier public health agency, uh, they have been in real dollars, in other words, adjusted for inflation, they have been dropping regularly over the past um, dozen, 15 years. So that's a real problem that has. Uh, hurt our our public health uh, capacity. The other thing that um, that happened, and this was definitely exacerbated in the beginning of the Trump administration, is the um, public health infrastructure at the federal highest federal levels, uh, and particularly t- in in terms of pandemic preparedness, was sharply cut, there was an office in the National Security Agency specifically focused on pandemic preparedness as a security issue set up by by Obama, closed down by Trump. That meant that there was no one in the driver's seat to be monitoring what was going on. In addition, there was a, uh, a public health liaison office in China, where we had several people on the ground in China to work with the Chinese public health officials on any public health issue, that was mostly shut down. Again, reducing our capacity to understand what was going on and make good reactions. But the biggest failing wasn't the monetary reductions for public health. It was the unwillingness to mount a concerted, response to the early pandemic threat. The way these things are supposed to work is when you realize there's a threatening pandemic, as we did by January, certainly mid to late January, you put together an all-star team of public health officials, uh, scientists, uh, analysts, logistics experts, people with long track records of designing and implementing pandemic response plans. And you give them the full authority to do what they need to do and the full support of the White House. That's the way you do it. That's not what happened. Instead, family members, political hacks, a few scientists, but who were mostly ignored, were assembled and they were not given the authority that they needed or the support they needed to do a good job. And in fact, again, as everyone knows, the public pronouncements that came out of Uh, the White House, and particularly from the President, were confusing and ambiguous. Uh, While he knew that this was a serious pandemic threatening, at the same time he knew that, he was saying on TV that this was just a few cases and would miraculously disappear. So while that public health capacity that you talked about is is, um, getting too low and needs to come back up, um, the real problem from my perspective was the failure to jump in and act when we could and should have.
0: Yes, that was a concern, and it does go to show no matter what system you have, you need people who execute things well for something to succeed. Yes, logistics are boring but critical. Well, I like to say if you go to a conference and you don't notice how it's being run, that conference is being run very well. We will take it. I'd like to also shift gears a little bit again and talk about data collection. Early on, I heard when the federal government was trying to get critical data about the disease, they had to call hospitals and have hospitals fax the data. And as far as I know, we don't have a standard format for data exchange among different electronic health record systems also commonly called EHR systems. How has that affected our response and just in general, our ability to collect data on diseases?
1: Yeah, there are two flavors of data collection in health and related to the pandemic. One is public health data. So if you have uh, case reporting, which can come from the results of uh, tests and can come from clinical diagnoses as well, uh, you need a, a, a good electronic system to record those positive tests and, and pass them on to CDC or in other parts of the federal government so that we can keep track. And that reporting was it, it is usually organized at the state level and then on to the federal level. And that reporting was uh, uh, antiquated, uh, relying on uh, faxes and spreadsheets and, and other things. And I'm a big fan of spreadsheets, but that's not the latest technology in how you uh, uh, transmit data. You have sophisticated uh, data um, data systems uh, that the business world uses all the time, and that's what we should have been doing for the public health data. The other side of the picture is the clinical data, and that's what you're referring to when you speak of the EHR or the electronic health record. So when you go to the doctor, uh, in almost all settings, the doctor will... Uh, is no longer using a paper chart is now using an electronic uh, a, a software program um there are many different ones they are private and proprietary in general which is a problem but they uh they these these uh e h r s record information like um you know what your uh, symptoms were or test results diagnoses all of that and um they are uh they are not coordinated to talk to each other very well because they have, you have multiple different private vendors producing these EHRs and with no real incentive to have the EHRs be able to talk to each other. The EHRs don't talk to each other. And as a result, uh, the data you would want from clinical encounters is not readily available. So let me flip it inside out and say, what would a data system look like that would help us gather clinical data about COVID or any other clinical condition to get it quickly, simply, and comprehensively? And it would mean that you would have one electronic health record that was, you know, well-designed, useful for clinical care. And because it's a single system, could easily integrate and send reports automatically. Uh, that's one of the many advantages to a single payer system. In a single payer, we would have a unified electronic approach to billing and to medical records. And I I think it's on our agenda to talk about that a little bit today. But the the, the kinds of the specific kinds of data that We would have wanted to help us with COVID would have been people with the symptom constellations that suggested COVID uh, by geographic location with their test results once the test became available. Um, This kind uh, of information was available in Taiwan, which has a single-payer system and a very proactive and effective uh, data system for health and they were able to use it to have a very mild COVID pandemic.
0: Well, you brought up single-payer, and one of the things that you keep reading about is people may be afraid to go to the hospital if they have COVID because they can't afford care. So, obviously, a single-payer system would help with that, but do you think that there are other ways that a single payer system would have helped in our response to COVID? And then generalize that. How do you think a single payer system would help our healthcare system, our healthcare outcomes?
1: Well, yes, of course. Uh, you don't want financial barriers facing people who suspect that they uh, might have COVID, uh, and, and therefore they don't go to the doctor. You don't want that for any disease, but during a pandemic, you don't want to hide the cases that uh, you want to be treating and isolating. The ideal scenario is someone feels like they are a little sick, they might have COVID, or maybe they were just exposed to someone with COVID. You want them to go get tested and go see a doctor as quickly as possible. So if they do have COVID, they can be told to self-isolate for the required roughly two weeks. Um, that's an important uh, thing. And if people don't go to the doctor because they can't afford the financial obligations, that's a real problem for their health and for pandemic control. More generally, COVID-19 revealed a lot of vulnerabilities in our healthcare financing system. These are not new revelations, but they really expose them in, in stark contrast. For example, most of our health insurance is linked to jobs. Most of us are insured because we work and our employers help us pay for health insurance. They usually pay more than half of the health insurance costs. Well, what happens when you lose your job? Like, for example, during a pandemic when people are told to stay home, and for many people that means they can't keep doing their job. If you're laid off, you lose your insurance. So we had Probably on the order of 15 million additional people who lost their insurance because of COVID, and so those are people whose financial barriers to getting care just jumped up tremendously. Another issue is the role of health insurers in our system. Um, private health insurers make a lot of money, and uh, in the COVID uh, pandemic, there was a concern that uh, that the money available to to pay for COVID care uh, might not be available because there would be a surge in the need for COVID care. But what we didn't realize initially, but what turned out to be true is that because people were scared of going to healthcare settings and being exposed to COVID, like if you had some emergency, you don't want to sit in an emergency room for six hours with people who might have COVID even if you want routine care, you tend to stay away from medical care during the pandemic if you can. In addition, as I mentioned, a lot of people lost their insurance. So the demand for medical care actually dropped considerably overall. went up for COVID, but overall it dropped considerably. And guess who's making lots of profits on the decrease in medical care? That's right, private health insurers who have received the premiums based on care patterns from last year, and this year's care patterns are lower, but their premiums continue on mostly the same. Some small adjustments, but basically it's a hugely profitable year for health insurers. Let me say that again. Amidst the biggest pandemic in 100 years, private health insurers are seeing their profits double Or more.
0: Yes. And I wonder why they're requesting rate increases for next year. It's a mystery. Yeah. Well, we could talk a lot about health insurers, but I've talked about it before and I don't want to get into that right now. That'd probably be another hour at least. Anyway. Before we end, do you have anything that you would like to add? We
1: just dodged a big bullet. I would say we dodged a bazooka shell or maybe a nuclear bomb in voting Trump out of office. It's been a terrible four years, uh, terrible for uh, public health, terrible for health care, uh, terrible in too many ways to uh, recite right now because I know there's a time limit on our interview. And with Biden's uh, win of this 2020 election, uh, we uh, can return to normalcy, democracy back in place, the Affordable Care Act uh, strengthened, I'm sure. And quite a few people in the Biden administration or working with the Biden administration who are big supporters of Medicare for all. Um, As you and your listeners know, uh, support for Medicare for all continues well above 50%, 60 to 70% if you ask the questions in a way that people understand what they're looking at. That is to say a a publicly financed uh, universal healthcare system where people's taxes may go up their premiums and cost-sharing disappear, and they're guaranteed of having health insurance. So, as I mentioned, uh, the COVID pandemic has really sharpened our understanding of the problems with our current healthcare system, and we need to redouble our efforts to move in the direction of single-payer if there is a public option, which seems likely, that public option needs to be really public. It needs to be a public financing of services, not Medicare Advantage, not letting the private companies get a bigger uh, hold on, on our uh, financing of healthcare. care. Uh, needs to be truly public, and hopefully that will lead the way in coming years to what we know we need to do which is a single-payer Medicare-for-all system.
0: Actually, I'm going to ask one more question because you're an expert on the economics of healthcare and those effects. Sure. And could you just talk about how a single-payer system would help people economically, especially when it comes to jobs or starting a business?
1: Sure. Um, I think everyone knows that, that Medicare for All would save money for society um, by um, reducing the $600 billion per year that we spend uh, on wasteful uh, administrative costs due to the complex billing and uh, overpriced drugs as well. And so if you reduce costs to society, that means that you can take those resources and put them into other activities. For example, we could do much better at paying for long-term care as a society if we didn't waste money on administrative costs. So that's one way to to help people. But also by de-linking jobs and insurance, we give small companies, both ongoing small companies uh, like family businesses, small family businesses, as well as uh, tech startups and other startups, the opportunity to focus 100% on their business model and not on the healthcare needs or health insurance needs of their employees. This is really important to offer the United States uh, an opportunity to be more competitive internationally. Other countries have the healthcare costs taken care of, they spend less, they don't burden employers with those costs, and we would become more competitive. And uh, individuals who wanted to explore some great idea for a new business, would not have to worry about insurance for their employees or for that matter, for themselves. So it would be liberating. I have talked to people who have dealt with
0: entrepreneurs and always one of the biggest concerns is what do I do about healthcare? So I think that's an important point that's often overlooked. Indeed. Jim, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained.
1: Thank you, Joe, for having me. And thank you for this labor of love on your part to to reach out to the community of people who support Medicare for All.
0: I appreciate that. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.